and she who endures till the end of Impact 2020 shall be saved. And so you're here. We realize full well that people begin to head off on Monday to make their way home. We will be praying for you that your travels home uh, are safe. And uh, we're so thrilled that you joined us here for a truly remarkable uh, time together. I kind of just want to talk to you as we close. I suppose if I was in ministry 40 or 50 years, that would come with a lot more ethos. But I hope that you can look through the fact that I haven't been in ministry long about what we're going to consider today as we close this conference. We've been served so well by Phil Henderson and Andre Bay. You know, there's a little story of a preacher and he was preaching at his church Lord's Day after Lord's Day and he would preach the text but some of the congregants were moved in their heart and one of them left a little note in the pulpit for him to come and find. And that note said, oh, that we might see Jesus. You see this pastor is preaching week after week. But he wasn't preaching Jesus. Spurgeon, as Spurgeon often did, had some strong statements. He said, if there's no Christ in your sermon, then go home. And don't ever preach again. And we had as our aim to present to you the glories and the beauty of Christ. And Andre Bay last night. Yeah. He preached a beautiful sermon. I make mention of that because I know you will agree with me, but what we're doing here and what we do in our life, in our local church, and what we do as believers, this is not a game. It's not a game. On Saturday night, we jet toured through the book of Acts. And basically every second chapter has Christians being imprisoned, persecuted. And I made mention that suffering is just as connected to our faith as singing. This is not a game. Phil. I think you broke YouTube with that last sermon. I'm, I'm pretty sure we don't have a live stream at the moment because of your sermon. <laughs> this is courage on display. So thank you. We've considered the kingship of Christ on Friday night. 
We saw that our king was king by divine right as the eternal son. And yet he comes from the father and he lives and dies on behalf of all those that were given to him by the father in eternity past and in his living and in his dying, he purchases for them all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus and God at the ascension inaugurates him as king over the spiritual kingdom which is sitting here before me. The spiritual kingdom on earth is the greatest manifestation of the glory of God. They can have this building. They can have our houses. But they cannot have the assembly of the greatest manifestation of the glory of God. We looked at some pertinent distinguishing characteristics of the spiritual kingdom called the church. The church is to be marked by love. And I brought out forgiveness. We are a forgiven people. And let us freely forgive. The church is to be defined by a kingdom that does not receive its orders from the civil kingdom. As it pertains to the assembly. Now in our final session together, I want us to consider the reality of what life looks like. As having Christ as king. And being in his kingdom here on earth. But before we look at that in Hebrews chapter 13, I want to just run you through something. Again, the Riverbend Saints will continue to be very patient with me because they've heard this before. But I need it every day. The cross was a common tool. To execute criminals. Countless people. Executed. The cross. Therefore then. Represented immense shame. Why? Because as a criminal. You were forced to carry that cross. Through the street. People would mock you. Spit on you. Ridicule you. Throw all sorts of things at you. The cross certainly represented suffering. Certainly not pleasant to hang upon a cross. And the cross represents death. You die from suffocation and crucifixion. What does self want? Does the self want shame in and of our self? No. Self wants 
comfort. Self wants to be thought of well. A good reputation. Self certainly doesn't want suffering. Self wants ease. And self certainly doesn't want death. Self wants the preservation of life. Jesus said, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Jesus also said that anyone who drinks of him, the water that he gives, will never thirst again. Jesus said the one who eats of the bread that he gives will never be hungry. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. God, in the person of Christ and through the pages of scripture, gives us a lesson of where we are to find our satisfaction from. We are not to find satisfaction from being thought of well, having a good reputation. We're not to find our satisfaction from comfort and ease. And we're not to find our satisfaction with the preservation of our own life. More on that as we go along. But I invite you to turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 13. Let love. Verse 1. Of the brethren continue. You've got to realize the context in which this letter is written. This is written to a suffering church. Let love continue. And in the midst of suffering, persecution, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Oh, and by the way, church, verse 3, remember the prisoners. Remember them in such a way as though you are in prison with them. And not only those who have found themselves in prison, but also remember those who are ill-treated. Having perhaps not even yet found their way to prison. But still being ill-treated. Since you yourselves are in the body. The, the church. Verse 9. In the midst of suffering. In the midst of there being very confusing times. What do I do? Do What are we doing? How do we address some of the things that are happening to us? Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Not by foods. 
through which those who benefited were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the camp. So let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city. But we're seeking the city which is to come. Father, I come before you and I pray that you'd give me the words to say. Wisdom, an unction from on high, clarity of mind, clarity of mouth. I pray for this precious people, Lord, that we would be drawn closer to you. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Father, your son came and dwelt among us and we have beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace. And truth. Be with us now. Build your church. Speak to us, we pray. Amen. I've become more and more convinced that the church is not so much in the ultimate sense about us coming and declaring our love for God, even though that is a tremendous thing that we do as the people of God. I really believe in the ultimate sense the church is about God declaring his love for us through the means of grace, through the preach word of God. Our musicians are some of the most gifted people I've seen. Our vocalists are tremendous singers. Our leaders are tremendous leaders. And one or two of them, because they are so desirous of doing things excellently, would come to me in the lead up to this conference and say things like, what are you guys going to be talking about? There's three of you. What are you going to be doing? How's this going to be happening? I'd say, have you spoken about it? Not really, no. But what do you mean? And in my heart of hearts, I just knew the Lord was going to speak to his church. We didn't really talk much about anything about what we were going to preach about. And it just wove in perfectly. Why? Because God is providential over everything, including what is preached. He speaks to his church. Have you ever heard the phrase, the patience of Job? That phrase is sometimes used of a person when they endure hardship. They have the patience of Job. Job obviously endured immense suffering. And as he endured that, he displayed incredible faithfulness. Books have been written about Job's endurance in the face of suffering. One is by Chuck Swindoll, one of the most well-known ones. It was entitled Job, a man of heroic endurance. In fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, in his epistle to the Jews under persecution, 
wrote in James chapter 5 verse 1, we count those blessed who endured. You've heard, he said, of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. When you consider the fact that James, by the time James wrote his epistle to a suffering church scattered due to persecution, Stephen had already been stoned to death as the first Christian martyr nonetheless. And also the church in Jerusalem had been forced to flee the area due to persecution. We read of that in Acts chapter 8. And so all through the church, as I said on Saturday night and all through church history, even to our present day, the church has always been suffering. Why would the church... Always be marked by suffering. Because its Lord and King and Savior is the suffering servant of Yahweh. More than ever, we as believers need to be taking the time to think critically. I fear that we've lost our ability to think deeply. We need to be thinking critically so as to ever be identifying areas where we need to correct our perspective on things. And I just want to say to you, in order to do that, you need to put down the New Zealand mainstream media. They are a toxic virus. Just do away with them. They have an agenda. And they affect your mind and thinking on matters more than you would realize. We need to think beyond the surface on things now. Now is not the time for shallow thinking. Shallow thinking on theology. Not the time. Never been the time, certainly not the time now when Western nations such as ours are in Romans 1 full bloom. People can sometimes say, well, hey, you're a pastor, just preach the word of God. Don't talk about things outside that. And then that's your role and don't dare talk about that. You know what? When Romans 1 is in full bloom, the things that they are doing are not political. They are theological. We need to be thinking deeply, not shallow, on theology and all these ideologies and mandates being rammed down our throat, rapid fire. Because we so subtly drift into a subpar biblical worldview and even deficient perspectives very easily and often and often too often without even realizing it. And often it's not until... In God's kindness and in his acts of providence, we then find ourselves in certain circumstances. In Canada, they have had, the kettle is boiling in Canada. Here in New Zealand, the kettle is not presently even on the stove. God will bring 
providential circumstances into our life. And if we're not thinking now, sometimes it's too late. It's been well said often that you need a theology of suffering before you suffer. Often we forget that this is all part of the Christian journey. And part of the Christian journey is that we, know to know, we need to know God more. The paradigm of the Christian life is mind, affections, will, actions. Your height of worship and your height of bringing glory to God directly correlates to the depth of your knowledge of God. You can only rise so high in worship and bringing God glory as you have plumbed the depths of who our God is. We need to know our God. Often a deeper look at something pertaining to the faith. Or the practice of the faith. Can reveal to us more of who God is. More of who he calls us to be. In the times that he has ordained for us to live. Where we have the privilege to minister. As just a voice. Trophies of his sovereign grace. Instruments of his sovereign mercy. As we proclaim the good news. And shine as lights in the world. And function as salt in the world. And I do want to say. That it is the darkest of hours. That the light of the gospel shines the brightest. You may be one of those people. That I mentioned the other night. Who just just don't give me anything negative. I, I don't want to talk about anything negative. I don't want to think about anything negative. It overwhelms me. The gospel can never be overwhelmed, no matter how dark the world gets. And as we see our Western nations abandoning God, things get darker, but they are opportunities for the gospel. So if you hear the ideologies that Phil was unfolding for us and you begin to feel overwhelmed, understand that this is a glorious time to be alive. Glorious time. Do not fear. Do not fret. Pray for our brothers and sisters in places like Canada. Here in New Zealand, as I said, the kettle is not even on the stove. In places like Canada, where fathers are literally sitting in jail cells for calling their daughter daughter right this moment. The Supreme Court of Canada declared it a violent family crime for a father to call his daughter daughter. He's in prison for it. In places like Canada where pastors are in prison right now in the church, buildings fenced off right now, taken away from them altogether right now. In Canada, the, the kettle is beginning to whistle. And so as shepherds, our heart this weekend has been to tell you what we see coming down the pipeline in the hope that it will prepare you. There's a little phrase familiar to most Christians in Job chapter 19, verse 25. I can read it for you. Job has endured much. By the time he says this, 
He's patiently persevered. And he says, I know my Redeemer lives. <laughs> I mentioned and quoted in our last session some pieces from a sermon from Jonathan Edwards in 1738. Well, in 1740, Edwards preached a sermon on those exact words from Job. I know my Redeemer lives. And from those few words, he pulled out two implications for his hearers. Number one, the privilege of those words and being able to say them. And number two, how much Job values that privilege. I know that my Redeemer lives. That little acorn of truth spoken by Job as he was under duress is knowledge that affects the mind. Knowledge that ignites the affections of our heart. That phrase from Job becomes more and more profound when we think carefully and deeply about the kind of redeemer Jesus Christ is. You see, when we think of Jesus, our minds ought to be filled with thoughts like this. My Lord and my King. The God-man mediator, son of God. The one who is the eternal, living, all-sufficient, all-satisfying, ever-faithful and ever-unchanging, loving Lord who only ever blesses and who only, mark this down, who only ever calls me to do things that are good. Things that include... All that it means and all that it looks like and all that it costs living as the spiritual kingdom here on earth. You see, it's one thing to identify that we are the spiritual kingdom on earth. It's one thing to identify that Christ is king reigning from on high and as we serve him. By advancing the spiritual kingdom by spiritual means. It's one thing to identify all of that. It is quite another to live as it. And that's where our verses in Hebrews chapter 13 and some surrounding verses in this letter inform our hearts and minds on such a privilege that is ours to live here on earth as participants in the new covenant blessings as members of the spiritual kingdom here on earth. And so, yes, Jesus is eternal. He is living. He is all sufficient. He is all satisfying. He is ever faithful. He is always and ever unchanging. He is loving. And yet he's also our savior and redeemer. And as Steve Nichols, once again, in that wonderful book, Heaven on Earth, which I made mention of already. He rightly highlights as it pertains to Jesus as our Savior, Redeemer. He wrote, quote, we, that is the church, are participants. He is not a Savior for others. He is our Savior for us. Job, Job says, my Redeemer. My Redeemer. 
And so in the hard times of life here on earth, it must mean something to us to have my Redeemer. But what's a richer, more practical application of that? It's this. That Jesus, our Savior, yours and mine, He is always above the storm. Always. He is in active, sovereign control of the storm. And he is able to stop the storm with a wind, if and so when he pleases. And what does that truth bring about? An assured heart. An assured heart. And having an assured heart. Some of you here this afternoon are not in possession of an assured heart. An assured heart makes living as the spiritual kingdom here on earth that little bit easier when trials and even persecution come. You see, to have an assured heart is to have an encouraged heart. And to have an encouraged heart is to have courage. The preposition ain at the beginning of the word encouragement means to put into And so to be encouraged is to have courage, is to have the grace endowed ability to go through life's difficulties, which for the Christian is not simply just sickness and pain and loss of loved ones and broken marriages as heartbreaking and tragic and wrenching as all that truly is, but also as it has always been for the Christian, for the church throughout history, it includes bearing our king's reproach. Christians have always been willing to bear their king's reproach. Today, being safe is almost the greatest commandment in the world. I would submit to you that safism is the fastest growing religion in the world. The church of Jesus Christ has never been about being safe. The church of Jesus Christ has always been about suffering rejection for following him, suffering shame and ridicule for obeying him, suffering hostility for worshiping him as the church. And mark this down. Doing so cheerfully. And gladly and without compromise or fear. We have been lulled into A state of stupor. The judgment of God upon Western nations has been ease. It's been ease. In case you didn't get that, it's been ease. And so our final time together, I want us to just move around these verses 9 to 14 of Hebrews chapter 13. And some other portions of Hebrews. Hebrews, like James... And like the other New Testament epistles, is written to prepare and encourage the church as it faces suffering. And in that suffering, there is the propensity for error and compromise to creep in. 
And so Hebrews has as its ultimate aim and remedy the exaltation of the Son. The lifting up of the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And mark this down, the worthiness of the Son. He is worthy. As the majestic King seated in heaven, ruling and reigning is as king, so worthy is he that we count it a privilege both to worship him, but also a privilege to bear his reproach. The idea of bearing the reproach of another, and what is meant by that phrase, is to endure something unpleasant or difficult in the place of another. And to do that means there needs to be a willingness. To lay down self. But self doesn't want that. Self wants a good reputation. Self wants comfort and ease. Self wants to do everything it can to preserve life. The very idea of bearing his reproach means being willing to endure something in the place of another. And being willing to lay down Self. Jesus did that for us, didn't he? I mean, we're moved and motivated. Second Corinthians five, verse 14. We are compelled by the love of Christ, not our love for him, his love for us. We're compelled by the fact that he lived and died for us. And therefore, in light of him living for us, we must no longer live for ourselves, but for him. Romans chapter 15, verse 3 says, for Christ did not please himself. But as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. Jesus himself was arrested in the garden. The apostles were all arrested. Christians are all arrested. And pastors are being arrested. And Jesus himself was arrested. Oh, we don't go looking for trouble to be belligerent or to become a hero of the faith by pursuing and wanting to do what our heroes have done. But we do not run from embracing what not only our Lord and Savior experienced, but also our brothers and sisters throughout the church. In that garden, when Jesus was arrested, right before they took him away, he prayed to the Father. He prayed that the cup of wrath... That is the bearing of the reproach for his people. He prayed, if possible, might be taken from him. But. In his humanity. He prayed, not as I will. He prayed, but as you, father, will. The son was faithful to the father. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 says that the son, as an apostle and great high priest of our confession, was faithful to him who appointed him. Appointed him to suffer. Appointed him to bear reproach. And do you know what energized and empowered Jesus to bend his human will to that of the divine will of the father? 
satisfaction. Satisfaction. The son in his humanity had an appropriation of where true and lasting satisfaction comes from. In John chapter 4 verse 24, I said it before, my food, he said, is to do the will of him who sent me. What does food do to an empty stomach? Satisfied. Imagine we gave you no food at this conference. <laughs> oh, it's okay, I'll fast for four days. Well, for those of us who didn't want to do that, hunger would set in no matter what, and we would drive or walk no matter what down to the store to get ourselves some food. Because there's a hunger that needs satisfying. You know, in seeking to remedy that hunger and thirst, we can seek satisfaction in all the wrong things. Like comfort and ease, staying safe. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, our response to suffering, and I'm talking specifically about suffering coming from government. I just want to be clear. I'm not talking here specifically about suffering from the sad realities of the body aching or loved ones going to be with the Lord. Or I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about suffering at the hands of Western governments who for the very first time in nations like ours are turning against the church. If we're not careful, our response to that kind of suffering and our response to pressure coming upon the church can be to stay safe, stay comfortable, and to escape difficulty at all costs. And when at the heart level, it is always about staying safe and always about avoiding difficulty and seeking satisfaction from comfort and ease, then what has crept in, even under the dishonesty of our own flesh, is a seeking after our own will. It might be God's will that you suffer, or I suffer greatly, from tyranny, tyranny, just as the book of Acts has always shown us, the church has always suffered. It may be that that is God's will for you. And in that moment, you cannot seek your own will. The son in his humanity bowed his will to the father's will. You and I may be called to bow our will to the father's will. We make comfort and ease and safety our treasure. And that threefold approach to life then becomes our initiative. Jesus said in John chapter 15 verse 18, I can do nothing on my own initiative because I do not seek my own will. But the will of him who sent me. 
for the Son, there was satisfaction in doing the will of the Father. Now, obviously, we do not possess the authority that Jesus did or the power that Jesus did to lay down our life and then take it up again. But we do have the grace endowed ability to have the same selfless attitude that Christ had. After all, we find that exact exhortation to the church in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5, which says, have this attitude, this selfless attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The attitude of selflessness and the attitude of finding satisfaction in the right place. That is the right person. The Son of God. Through the same Holy Spirit, as we behold the glory of our King and Savior, the Son of God, and find in Him satisfaction, we are able to be molded and motivated into a willing child of God who is willing to endure shame, willing to endure suffering, willing to endure ill treatment, because we are not finding satisfaction in safety or a good reputation or even a good testimony with this world. But in Jesus Christ, the Lord. To establish the deeper conviction on that than just a shallow surface type of thing. Look with me now at verse 11 of Hebrews 13. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. This is speaking about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. You say, well, how do you know that? It doesn't say it. Well, we know that it was, we know this because it was only on this day once a year where the blood of the sacrifices was brought inside the Holy of Holies by the one man allowed to enter. That is the high priest who was serving that year. And what was also distinct about this Day of Atonement was that instead of the meat being eaten afterwards, it was to be discarded, thrown out. Thrown outside the city gates. Thrown outside the camp. If you look up at verse 10, it says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. You see, these... Day of Atonement sacrifices, they were the foreshadows of the sacrifice that Jesus would make. And so in light of that, the church can say, we have an altar. And the significance of that becomes clear when we think of what else we can say as Hebrews brings out to us. As the church, we confess, we have a great high priest, Ephesians 4, 14 and 8, 1. We confess we have an anchor for our soul, Hebrews 6, 19. We confess we have confidence to enter the most holy place, Hebrews 10, 19. And if you look again at verse 9 of Hebrews 13, the author is there now beginning, as it says in the middle of verse 9, to show us that it is grace that strengthens us to live as the spiritual kingdom on earth. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. You see, the Day of Atonement sacrifices and the sacrificial system itself finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus' sacrificial 
death. His death is, as has been well said, the source of both the saving and the sustaining grace by which our hearts are strengthened. We have an altar means that in the heavenlies, we have an altar of which the earthly priesthood has no right to eat. That's what verse 10 is saying. It's speaking of two groups, the church in Christ and those under the old covenant law. As the church, we share in Christ's sacrifice. It saves us and it sustains us. And we need both. For as we'll see in the verses that follow, God does not call the church to safety. And ease. Verse 11, as we've seen, tells us that the bodies of the animals are burned outside the camp. Verse 12 shows us the aim of Jesus' sacrifice and really the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice as well as the actions surrounding his sacrifice. They are similar in their treatment to the bodies of the animals that are cast outside the camp. Verse 12 tells us Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate or outside the camp. And so the church, the spiritual kingdom here on earth, you and I, are those who have been sanctified, set apart, made holy by Jesus' shed blood. And the church are those who worship the one who was taken outside the camp, outside the city gates. And think about for a moment what it means for Jesus to be taken outside the camp and suffer there. Well, it means first that he was rejected by his own. It means also that he was rejected by the people of his own community, his own city. The city of David cast him aside. Second, it means that he was considered a blasphemer and a Sabbath breaker. Leviticus 24, 10 to 16 calls for the blasphemer to be considered cursed and then stoned outside the camp. Numbers 15 verse 35 says the Sabbath breaker must be stoned outside the camp. Both the blasphemer and the Sabbath breaker to be taken outside the camp and stoned to death. Third, it means that the Sanhedrin, who were the political and religious elite of the day, we're told in Mark 14 and Matthew 27 that it is they who declared him guilty and worthy of death. And so the political sphere condemns the Son of God as guilty, worthy of death. And so Jesus' death outside the camp was one of abandonment, rejection, dismissal. Desertion, shame, mockery, slander, disdain, suffering and pain. And I want you to see now from verse 13. That we the church here on earth. Are called by God to share in abandonment. To share in rejection, to share in dismissal. To share in shame and mockery and slander and suffering and pain. Look at verse 13. 
So, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Our king, who in his death, as explained in verse 12, as a death that sanctifies his people, is now seated at the right hand of the Father in glory as the God-man, experiencing all the regal reign as the inaugurated king, ruling over both the church and the world, awaiting the consummation of his kingship in that day to come when he will sit on David's throne. In He's doing all that in this present moment, having... He'll sit on David's throne in the future, but in the present moment, he's reigning as king. He is reigning as king, having purchased for us his church. As I've said multiple times this weekend, I say it repeatedly just because I just want to know, I want you to be reminded of how privileged we are as the people of God to have all the spiritual blessings that are ours. They come from Christ purchasing them in his living and in his dying. And that which he then applies to us as we behold his glory in the means of grace He is calling us to be willing to come out where He is. Where He was in this camp. Outside of it. He's calling us, His church, to come to a place of rejection. Come to a place of utter dismissal, mockery, disdain and suffering. To this time now... Bear his reproach just as he bore ours in his death. And so make no mistake about it. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 13 is calling the church to follow Christ into shame and disgrace. That can be hard when we want a good reputation. That can be hard when we feel the pressures of the world saying, you're being unloving. You need to love your neighbor. You see, Jesus' death provided for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. But But here in verse 13, His death is the very basis now for the command to follow Him into shame and suffering and disgrace ourselves. His death is the basis of that. We've sung it our whole life. Jesus died for me. His his death is the basis for calling the church to be willing to suffer disgrace in the eyes of the world. Never, ever forget Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, which says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Despising the shame. This means Jesus did not think much at all about the shame. That's what it means. For the joy set before him in fulfilling the Father's plan, he thought very little to nothing about the shame that he was enduring. And he's calling us to think very little about the shame that we will endure as the spiritual kingdom here on earth. 
In your own strength, you and I cannot do that. But thankfully, Colossians 1.29 tells us that he works mightily within us. Having been united to a powerful, beautiful Savior and King, my Redeemer lives. He did not feel shamed at all. In fact, in some translations, it tells us he scorned the idea of being ashamed. He was not afraid of all, at all of being considered a disgrace. His food was to do the will of him who sent him. This helps me. I'm not a courageous guy. I'm really not. This helps me. Satisfaction. Appropriated in the wrong place will result in a weak church. And a weak church will be overrun by a tyrannical government. Satisfaction in the right place, the person of Jesus Christ, will result in all of us joyfully and gladly going out to him. Willing to bear his reproach. Willing to be considered a scandal and a disgrace. I say all that because, mark my words, my dear brothers and sisters, mark my words, following Jesus makes you a scandal and a disgrace in the eyes of the world, both the citizens and the government. Everything about Jesus' death in the eyes of the government and citizens is a shameful disgrace. But please again, note those words in verse 13. May they be etched into your eyeballs and in the very depths of your heart of hearts. So, let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. And think about this for a moment. When we go out to him, what do we find in him? Rest. Rest. I mean, he said he came and said to all those that are tiresome and burdened and under heavy laden, come to him and he will give you rest. Our souls are in a perpetual state of unrest until they find their rest in him. And so even in the midst of pressing circumstances, when we go out to him, we find rest paradoxically. Hebrews chapter 4, 11 exhorts us to enter into that rest. And so in that rest we have in Christ is also the bearing of his reproach. Now they sound polar opposites. Restful suffering. But they're not. For in satisfaction is rest, and in rest is satisfaction. And when we find our satisfaction, not in doing everything we can to avoid disgrace and shame and slander and scorn from the world, which when we do that, it evidences that our satisfaction is in a good reputation, in comfort and ease. But instead, when we are willing to go out to Him, we find in him rest and satisfaction even amidst the very real experience of rejection and dismissal and shame and mockery. Because 
Our joy is not in being free from those things. Our joy is in being out there with Him. For, in verse 14, for here we do not have a lasting city. Here on earth is no lasting city. Here on earth, we will never be free from rejection and dismissal and shame and mockery. And my joy is not found in being free from those things here. Because here on earth, there is no lasting city. The call to follow Christ in verse 13 into disgrace and being shamed has as its very, has as its very basis the fact that we do not have a permanent city here on earth. Instead, we invest in the one to come and we allow the one to come to invest in our lives now. You see, suffering reproach as a believer during the week, Monday to Friday, and as a church assembling on the Lord's Day, it does not look good outwardly or even feel pleasant inwardly. But that's what it means to live by faith. We're called to live by faith and to share in the sufferings of Christ, which Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 and 1 Peter 4, 13 call a privilege. To you it has been granted not only to believe, but also to suffer in His name. And when you think about it, our entire faith is built upon such a thing. What do I mean? Well, the crucifixion of our Lord and King outwardly did not look good at all, did it? The suffering looked brutal. The shame looked cruel. But we know that even while outwardly that was horrible, it was accomplishing something beautiful and glorious. Embrace that in your sharing of the sufferings of Christ, that it may not outwardly look good, it may not inwardly feel pleasant, but it is accomplishing an eternal weight of glory. We're told in Scripture that those who suffer as the church in this world, the martyrs even receive a crown of glory. And I love what Andre said. We take that crown and put it down. Why do we do that though? He's worthy. Heaven's glory is a place of holy worship. And so we worship the Holy One. Heaven is a place marked of love. And so we live a life marked by love. Not love defined by the world. Do not ever allow the world to define what love is to you, believer. What they do now, under the guise of these health mandates or the coming climate mandates, they turn the non-vulnerable into the vulnerable. We must always care for the vulnerable in all of society, no matter what we're facing. But now what they do is they take those that weren't non-vulnerable and make them vulnerable by decimating their contact with others, their ability to earn wages, falling into a dark hole of drug abuse and suicide, but we are by God's mandates to care for all the vulnerable and all the suffering wherever they are found. Our precious elderly saints.
and especially those inside the house of faith. Heaven is a place of unity. And so we are zealous to maintain unity. Knowing that unity is not anchored in feeling, but in the inspired, timeless, countercultural commands from God our Father. And so let Hebrews 13 sink in. That is a pilgrim's text. We are pilgrims here on earth. Never forget for a single day that we are those who live on this earth as utter strangers and utter aliens. We have always been, we will always be here on earth ill-treated as such. And we're living on a journey with no ties to this earthly temporary city. Therefore, we don't find our joy in applaud from this world. I, I truly am keeping you way longer than you wanted to be here. But I also am truly... I don't have at all a part of my person, who I am, I don't seek at all to try and make the world understand the value I have for Christ and His church and the means of grace. They will never understand those things. They will never understand how precious it is for us to be together. They will never understand when we explain that the church is more than a social gathering. It's far more than a social. They just won't understand that. I don't care in some way. I'm not going to apologize for that. Don't ever feel you need to apologize for how bizarre we are. We're bizarre. We're pilgrims. Strangers as we go on. And because we're on a journey, we don't stop here and here seeking applaud from these people, seeking satisfaction from them. No, no, here there is no lasting city. We're seeking the one that is just to come. And my king is there. And my king bore my reproach. And on my journey to that celestial city, I will happily bear his reproach. I will not do everything I can to avoid it. I will embrace it. And turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 32. Remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Partly being made a spectacle, a public spectacle through reproaches, like through disgrace and tribulations. And partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Verse 34, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore... Do not throw away your confidence, your confidence, which has great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. What if we didn't have houses and generational wealth to donate and inherit? What if instead we were willing to traffic in investments in heaven and being willing like these people were to joyfully experience the seizure of your house? Let 
What if we were so willing to lose it all that God may gain it all? The glory God gets from the spiritual kingdom on earth being so enthralled with Jesus' worth that they, that is we, give glory due His name no matter the cost and no matter the predicament. Too often, in our secular Western mindset, we think bad things will happen when we stand faithful. And that fills our mind. If we do this, then bad things will happen. But the truth is, great things happen when we stand faithful. It's always been the case for the church on earth and all through history. Revival and reformation has always been preceded by, that is, always come before the spiritual kingdom on earth being assailed and assaulted and persecuted. These are great times to be alive in the West. Don't hold on to the dear thing about, oh, my nation has been so great and it's falling apart. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. These are great times to be alive. The church has never once waited until persecution arrives in order to make a stand and be faithful. As I said on Friday night, it's always stood and been faithful, which then brings about reproaches and suffering. Just very quickly as we've done. Look at chapter 11 now, verse 23. I have no idea how long I've preached for. I just wanted to talk to you. One of the elders said two hours. Um, I apologize for keeping you. But um, I just have to share this with you. By faith, verse 23 of Hebrews 11 By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Moses' parents defied the government. They hid their child. The government was requiring that all sons that were born were to be killed and every daughter was to be kept. You read about that in Exodus Exodus 1 and 2. In Exodus... Chapter 1, verse 17, we read that the midwives of the day also defied the government by keeping the babies alive. Our government murders babies right up until 40 weeks. Moses' parents here, they were not afraid of the government's edict, the law and decree that you must kill the son. They kept Moses alive. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What would lead to Moses standing against the government of the day? That's what the Pharaoh is, the highest government in the land. What would lead for him to do that and also to refuse to imbibe their mandates over him any longer? Verse 25. By faith, choosing rather to endure ill Treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. It would have been far easier and far more comfortable for Moses to stay in the position he was. Instead, he was willing to suffer ill treatment with the people of God. Why? Well, he models for us what it means to have as the goal to be satisfied in God, in Christ Jesus. 
I made mention before that Jesus says in John chapter 8 verse 34. That anyone who is to follow him. Is to take up their cross. Deny themselves. I made mention at the beginning that the cross meant immense shame. The cross meant immense suffering. The cross meant certain death. Self doesn't want shame. Self doesn't want suffering. Self doesn't want to die. Self wants the opposite. Instead of shame, self wants honor and prestige. It wants comfort and ease. To deny yourself is to take up your cross and being willing to deny our own honor, our own comfort, our own ease, our own self-preservation and even our own life for Christ's sake. Are we willing to do that? Did not the Apostle Paul say in Philippians chapter 1 verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? To live for Christ is to treasure Him and to live for Him no matter the cost is truly life abundant. Jesus said, John chapter 10 verse 10, that He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And the paradox is that that abundance meant eternal rest for our souls and bearing the reproach in our flesh. That's what He calls the church to do. Don't find satisfaction in anything other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. And let us always be willing and always ready to go out to him and bear his reproach. Let's pray. Father, I pray for this precious people. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to them, really. From your word, thank you for your kindness and love that you've expressed and displayed to us through the preaching of your word this entire weekend. Lord, before us is only you know what. Often the frog boils slowly in the pot. That's what it's going to be like probably. Help us to never be ignorant of the devil's schemes. But help us to ever be rejoicing in Jesus. These are great days to be alive. And all God's people said.